my name's uh, Brian Roach, and um, I grew up in Tralee. Um, after about, I think, three years in the United States, my parents had immigrated uh, sometime in the early 60s, um, came back to live in Ireland um, in the early 70s, and uh, I have very little memory of the United States, but what I do remember very strongly about growing up in Tralee was the fact that we were on the edge of town. Of course, now where we lived was, is the centre, exactly in the centre of town, pretty much. Um, and it was a wonderful place to grow up because we had the town within reach and literally out my back door was were fields that stretched pretty much to Abbey Dorney, seven miles away. Just infinite open space and, and infinite um, you know, expanses of nature around in every direction. And of course now, looking back, they weren't that infinite, but to a child, to be able to walk as far as you want through ditches and to never find the last field. We, we spend our childhood looking for the last field and no one ever, none of our friends ever found the last field. It went on too far. It was more than a day's walk back again, so we always had to return before, before, before nightfall. Hi, I'm Brian, and that's me talking. I'm here to tell you about my brother, Eric Roach. All of the music that you'll hear in this documentary is played by Eric. If you haven't heard of him, you should have. He's some guitarist. So there was uh, myself and uh, my brother Eric, and uh, later on my sister Carmel. And um, myself and Eric were very close in age. My sister Carmel came a bit late. So most of my memories of running around and gallivanting in the fields and so on are with Eric because we were just two years apart. And my sister was born when he was, I think, nearly nine. So there was quite a, quite a big age gap. Um, so yeah, but funny thing about myself and Eric though was that um, Eric was far funnier and more popular than me. So he hung around with all the cool kids and I hung around with all the kids that were left over and that was a completely different group. So actually, even though we were brothers, we, were, we had different group, we had different cliques. So we actually saw two very different sides of the town. But the one thing that we both had in common and I learned to my surprise later on was that we, we preciously, dearly appreciated the fact that we were around the countryside and it meant nothing to me at the time and it meant nothing to him at the time but later on that that connection with endless space outside our back door became a hugely important thing religiously and spiritually for both of us um, and that's something I didn't know until very recently. Eric is a virtuoso fingerstyle guitarist one of the best I've ever heard. Well, when we came back from the United States, um, I was uh, a little whippersnapper of uh, three or four. Eric was five or six, a couple of years older. And um, Eric had the brightest blonde hair. It was white blonde, really. And, um, you know, in Tralee, uh, in the 1970s, having really blonde hair didn't make you any friends. <laughs> in fact, it attracted the wrong type of attention altogether in the in the schoolyard at, at, at the break time. So um, he had a bit of trouble with that. I don't remember anyone specifically saying anything now, but I know he actually got quite a hard time over his hair, which is interesting because the hair never stopped being an issue. <laughs> you know, the hair continued to be an issue um, for him, different styles. He was always interested in his hair. And uh, one thing he wasn't as well was sporty. I can't emphasize that enough. <laughs> he, he, Eric had 
absolutely no penchant for sports whatsoever. So it was so obvious that all that, it, you know, everyone has talents and something huge was going to happen because he was no good at sports. He was very average at school and he had no particular interest in school anyway. And then uh, I suppose at about age nine, he discovered the guitar and, you know, discovered um, is a word that you can put in inverted commas. I think he just wanted to play the guitar. I think it was like any kid just see someone on top of the pops that they like and just decides, hey, I could do that. I think it was that innocent. But once he was bought that guitar, the rest was history um, because it didn't uh, just he didn't just take to it like a duck to water. He, he changed as a person, even that young. He suddenly was popular at something. And he just, he shone, his confidence came out. He wasn't the, the, the kid with the strange coloured hair and the funny name, incidentally. There weren't many Eric's around uh, Ireland in the 70s. Um, I, I was um, very much into audio recording when I was a kid and had a tape recorder. And I recorded hours and hours and hours of Eric playing. And uh, sometimes, uh, not usually with me, uh, some kind of percussion instrument or whatever else in the background. And uh, at the time, you know, people wondered what the hell I was doing it all for. And I would so carefully catalogue it and date it. But, uh, but now, of course, we're, we're, we're very, very glad that we have this precious archive of his music going all the way back to age nine with his very first guitar. That's Eric practicing his classical guitar. I'm in the background recording. And you can hear my younger sister Carmel baby talking. And from there, about age nine up to his kind of mid-teen years, let me tell you, there is no greater aphrodisiac for a teenage boy than to say, hey, I can really play the guitar quite well. Very, very popular with girls at the time and, and literally could have had his choice because he was he was really good at the guitar. And and I often wondered at the time, you know, was that really all it was about? And maybe still in his mid-teens, maybe that still was it, what it was all about. He was playing Eric Clapton and he liked status quo and he was starting to play a bit of attention to um, people like Rapelli. And in the background, he was taking lessons, which obviously taught him straight classical music, but privately he enjoyed playing rock music more. And that's what got him all the attention. So that that is what I think most people in Ireland will remember him for is that period, because, of course, he left Ireland very young and the rest is history. Um, you know, he, he, he made a fantastic impression as a as a guitar virtuoso in the UK. But people in Ireland and people in Tralee who knew him uh, remember the, the cool kid with the guitar who could just wow people at parties. This is a very rare recording of my mother and Eric playing together. Um, Eric obviously was self-taught at the piano and many other instruments. And he's just playing Summertime and my mother is singing. Summertime and the living is easy. And it's nice because it creates this image of a family filled with music. But actually my parents weren't particularly musical themselves. And often people ask um, where it came from because uh, in our whole extended family there wouldn't be any particularly accomplished musicians aside maybe from an uncle of Eric's. I'm going out with you now, you know, 
Then you spread your wings and take to the sky. You put me off. Back then, Eric could be a bit of a rogue, even with Mom. He used to get away with murder. There'll be nothing to harm you. I with your mama and papa standing by. One of the tracks that meant a lot to my mother, more than anything he played, I think, was Bright Eyes. Yeah. It's out of tune. At least he's singing this time. And so I, th- I think that, you know, that those mid-teen years were great because life is innocent and uh, you're going to live forever and the leaving cert is a million years away and uh, no one's worried about jobs and he's going to be a rock star. <laughs> but as he, as he approached leaving cert kind of age 18, 19 and went through his leaving cert and went on to university, I think that was a very, very difficult time. I remember having conversations with him and he, he had the two of us in stitches talking about how little study he was doing. Uh, I was horrified because I was, I was a SWAT. I was, I was the nerd in my class. I was working hard. And to hear my brother rolling around laughing about there was really no chance he was going to pass this degree. Um, it was just hilarious. I couldn't understand how he could be so calm about it. But of course, he didn't, he didn't really want to pass it. He didn't care. He, he just wanted music. But he, he, he did finish college, and, but it, of course it didn't solve his problems. He got a job in accounting, was vaguely relevant to what he'd studied in college, but um, he was bored at best and bor- bordering on miserable, I think. And so there was a crisis point during that period in his early 20s where he knew it was either make or break. And to this day, I don't understand where he got the strength to to make the break, to say, I've got a job, I don't like it, but it pays the bills. I'm in a new country, I've made loads of friends. Um, around that time, he'd met his wife, Candy. And in that context to say, you know, to hell with it all, I'll, I'll leave my job and I'll try and make money playing music when you have no reputation, no album. It, it, was, going to be, it was going to be rough and it was for a while. And so that was the next phase of a breakthrough for him. It was, it was realising that it was better to go down trying and at least be playing music <laughs> as you go down than to, than to wait and wait and wait. Ireland in the 1990s wasn't the right place for a solo fingerstyle guitarist. And so Eric moved to London. I was journeying into the world of academia in Cork. We didn't see too much of each other around that time. In fact, for a good number of years. You see, London was a long way from Cork, especially for me, a student. And Tralee was a long way from London, especially for a guy like Eric, who was trying to eke out a living from his beloved guitar. And so I studied away towards my degree and PhD in psychology. And Eric, well, he played and composed and began to teach and fell in love. And life was really beginning to kick off for him. Eric had an unmistakable um, physical uh, composition, is that what you call her, a makeup? 
he used to laugh about a lot was he was convinced that one leg was shorter than the other although I'm sure every measurement the doctors took showed that that wasn't true but he used to swear as well that the skin on the back of his legs there wasn't enough skin on the back of his legs so he couldn't fully extend his legs so he always had to keep his knees bent a bit so you've got to imagine this guy and him making him sound like a cripple but he, it was all a part of this chaotic constantly moving funny joker um, not being able to fully stretch his legs as he walked looking like he was tall until you, you know, looked up and saw the whole man and realised he wasn't particularly tall um, and he, but he kept that, that blonde hair it got a little bit fairer throughout the years but God it got wild but all of that, what, what is worth saying is that even though to some extent Eric painted himself as a physical caricature when he took up the guitar his, his coordination was impeccable and that was, that was always a miracle that was a miracle to see this guy who didn't look like he could catch a ball in fact he couldn't catch a ball <laughs> take a guitar and play harmonics on the fly these beautiful ringing notes and play with such rapidity and precision it was incredible for a person who he had thought to be quite maybe uncoordinated and yet um, when it came to music he, um, it all just came together viewed his hands not so much as instruments for playing his guitar, but as channels for his music. As his brother, his hands weren't something I'd ever particularly noticed. But his wife Candy often commented on how his strong, chubby fingers could play his guitar so effortlessly. Eric had the amazing ability to push his thumb all the way back to his wrist. It was a form of double-jointedness that he'd acquired from his continual practice. He even managed to wear away his entire fingerprints. Play all through life is a very important part of development and Eric always played. Everything was a, was being played and so many adults can't play. They can't kick a ball with a kid. They can't laugh. Nothing. They've lost their innocence. And Eric, um, from a very early age, was a joker and a prankster and a laugh and very witty and centre of attention and um, and childish. And uh, and he never grew up really, except except in you know, he did uh, spiritually uh, awaken much later on in life. But ironically, it was that that. Uh, affirmed the importance of his childishness that turned out to have been a, an asset all along. Okay, um, I'm going to play something for someone who uh, challenged me about 16 years ago. Revenge is a terrible thing, but I like, uh, I like getting revenge. <laughs> and uh, this kid, about 16, 17 years ago, in a music store on the west coast of Ireland, uh, basically challenged me to uh, play the guitar solo from Jump by Van Halen. <laughs> and you know what? I still can't play it. <laughs> but the difference now is I don't give a shit. <laughs> Back then it meant a lot. And uh, I offered him some Bach preludes, I offered him some Villa Lobos, he wasn't interested. So tonight, I hope he's here. This is Jump. Jump. 
myself and Eric weren't very typical brothers. Although in one sense we were, in that sense was that, you know, we fought over who'd get the bigger bedroom and we'd fought over who'd get the new bike. And of course I was the younger one, so I always got the hand-me-downs, we'd fight over that. And so in that sense it was very typical. But um, we also did tend to have separate friends. It was a friend that made me realise what brotherhood is. Because at one point, I think I mustn't have been getting on with Eric. This would have been when we were only teenagers. And I was probably giving out stink to this, this friend of mine. And he said, he said, yeah, but if you were in jail and you got to make one phone call, who would you call? And I said, that, that hit me very hard. And I think that's, that is, that's even more important to remember that, I think, when your brother's abroad. Because no matter how much contact you lose and how much he's changing and you're changing and growing apart, I think that even... If Eric had been, uh, you know, in prison or been jail or been arrested and got told he could make one phone call, I think he would have called me if after his wife, I suppose. <laughs> but um, and I would have done the same thing, even though there was a, a small sea between us. So I think that I carried that with me then over the years, no matter how distant we became. And sometimes we were we saw each other a lot and other periods for years. We, it was barely, you know, the odd phone call, Christmas card. We were living separate lives. But that was in the back of my head all the time that I could pick up the phone anytime and, you know, get out of jail free, excuse me, get out of jail free card was, was available. So I think that's what brotherhood is. I think, I think you don't even have to like your brother. The concept of it is, is way more than uh, the genetics involved, you know, the X and Y chromosomes or whatever else. And, um, it, it has to do with um, a sort of a loyalty. I became someone's daddy last month. So, uh, it's an amazing thing. We had a home birth, and uh, we had the birth plan, you know. I don't know how many of you out there are parents, but uh, when you're having a baby, you do these birth plans, and generally they get thrown out the window. But you'd think with a home birth, really, you can stick to it. So we had, you know, the candles and the incest and the marijuana, not the marijuana. And the, the guitar tune. So I was going to write a guitar tune for uh, the little person who turned out to be a boy. And, uh, you know, I would play the tune. So I get the guitar out, and of course, it just didn't seem right at the time. <laughs> there was, uh, there's so much going on in the room that the guitar... I knew once I started playing that it was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the look in her face as well sort of said. But it's an amazing thing, completely changed our lives, obviously. Uh, it's been a huge, uh, incredible thing. And, uh, of course, I look at him, you know, every night, every day, and my son, the Olympic gold medalist, <laughs> the Nobel Peace Prize winner. And uh, I've already left the house two or three times with two different shoes on. In fact, I left the house today with no shoes on. And, uh, well, I always leave the house with two different types of shoes on. Not two different shoes, but these are two different types of shoes. Anyway, uh, this is for him, and the tune and the title came very easily. It's called Deep, Deep Down. By early 2004, Eric had released two albums, Spin and The Percolator, and the release of his third album, With These Hands, was on the horizon. At this stage, Eric and his wife Candy had bought their own home, had their first child, Stefan, and their second, a daughter, Francesca, hadn't yet arrived. Professionally, everything was on an upward keel. 
Eric was touring the world. He was holding down a teaching position at the Academy of Contemporary Music in Guildford. He was writing books, a regular magazine article, and he was being revered by students and fans and accomplished musicians the world over. From the, the very moment that Eric got news that um, he'd been diagnosed with cancer, he responded immediately by being very open with everyone about what was happening. He kept a diary online, I guess you could call it his cancer diary. And here's uh, one of the first entries from Thursday the 27th of May 2004. Hello to all the visitors to this site. Thanks for visiting, particularly at this time. I'm about to leave home to spend some time in hospital. Tomorrow morning I will undergo extensive surgery to remove a large cancerous tumour from my right jaw. It is an extremely rare form of saliva gland cancer and I am under one of the leading specialists in the UK. The cancer has not spread. The team of six who will take me through this operation are extremely confident that they know exactly what they're dealing with and where it is. Their united goal is to Uh, when Eric first got uh, the diagnosis and we all lived in uh, hope that it would go away, his big bad cancer, there was quite a long period, you know, after the operation where he, before he had any more checks, you know, to see if it was recurring and he seemed to be doing fine. So he was weak from radiation and he was, you know, he had a you know, very important personal journey to go on recovering from this, this trauma from which he would benefit so much. So... Early in that period, I remember him being very, um, I suppose, during the very early period after the diagnosis, I suppose there was an element of panic and fear, and he was quite needy. And he did act a little bit, to some extent, like, you know, gather around, I, I need you, and I, I got the impression, you know, I, and I think anyone with cancer would, would be forgiven for, for creating this impression, but that, um, you know, I'm calling in my favours, you know, this is like, I, you know, this is it, I need favours now like I never needed them before. And, and that's... That sounds nice, uh, it's what friends do, but it's very, very close to obligation. And there's no such thing as obligation between friends. And that very quickly uh, emerged. We had to have a few conversations about the fact that I loved him and would do things for him, but if I were to be obliged, I wouldn't be doing them for him. I'd be doing them under threat. I'd be doing them under pressure. And I wanted to have a much more open relationship than that. But at the same time, I was saying, well, you know, what can I do? And But at the, during that period, I'm getting married. I'm planning to get married. I'm moving house. My, um, I'm planning a future. There's a lot happening for me as well. And I can't give him everything because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm starting a new life with my, my wife. And um, And we came to a beautiful agreement that I was so happy with maybe six months later, where he was able to tell me, you owe me nothing. And it was so wonderful to hear from your brother who has cancer, you you owe me nothing and everything you give me is a gift. And that was so liberating because incidentally it makes you want to give more. And and, and saying you owe me has the exact opposite effect. It, you owe me is exactly what frightened people do and it stifles love. And what what people who have love and channel love and feel love and give love instead of take it do is they they allow people to love them at their own pace and Eric started to allow us to love him at our pace so you know what was happening of course when that was happening was Eric was becoming the teacher of us all he was the sick one and he was teaching us how to love he was the one with the grace he was the one with the acceptance he was the one saying whatever you can do don't worry about it you owe me nothing 
And, you know, and behind the scenes, the family are in total panic about saving this guy's life. Two thousand and four came and went, and with it, Eric's cancer. Two thousand and five was a new year and a new beginning. Eric was back on the road, playing, teaching, writing. And then April came. When you get the information about the return of the cancer, it's very different to hearing it the first time. The first time, there's a lot of panic. Um, there's a lot of followed by, uh, you know, some information gathering and then hope that something can be done. When it comes around the second time, there's no delusion anymore. That's pretty much it. You know, not in every case. I don't want to say there's no hope for anyone who's had cancer twice. But in my brother's case, with the type of cancer he had and given where it had spread to, I suppose some people um, held out hope. But Eric knew in his heart. He told me over the phone himself. And I was very blessed to be where I was when he told me I was out in the middle of absolutely nowhere in the Mojave Desert on a trip um, with my wife. I'd spent a lot of time in the Mojave Desert alone over the past 10 years on my own spiritual quest. She was with me for the first time and we stopped at a small town for gasoline and we made the call. And Eric said it's metastasized and it's spread and they give me... Um, I think he said a year to two years at absolute best. Um, I don't think I fully believed it. But it was a beautiful place to get that news. <laughs> and it was the most beautiful conversation I ever had with anyone. If you don't know what human intimacy is, you find out very fast when your brother tells you, I'm going to die. Because if you judged him up till then and you had fallouts, everything dissolves everything trivial just dissolves and i i've never talked to people about this before because i think they find it too upsetting but hanging up from him on that phone call must have been one of the strangest sur most surreal experiences i ever had in my life your brother my brother has just told me he's going to die it's a matter of time and i say well i'll talk to you later and hang up <laughs> hear my coins tinkle down into my phone booth that was just absolutely bizarre and um, I'll never forget it um, it's, it's very very hard news to take as Eric's cancer progressed uh, my mother and father moved over full time and towards the end but I had a job I had a, a partner and a life and um, and life goes on and one of the most wonderful ways for Eric's life which was going on to be celebrated was for my life to go on and I was able to be with him as much as I wanted and I was able to come home and do other things. So I didn't panic and try and spend every living moment with him and act as if all that matters now is to be with him because I hadn't done that before. So it seemed rather strange to do it now. He was in excellent care. I loved his company. I'd gotten to know him very well in that last year. And we rediscovered our, our brotherly relationship, which which hadn't been nurtured because of just because of physical distance mostly. And I didn't feel the obligation to be there morning, noon and night. And that was all a part of the free and easy relationship we had. And we talked on the phone, but 
Ultimately, he couldn't speak easily on the phone. It became very, very difficult to understand him. So the previous few times I saw Eric, on sort of weekly or fortnightly trips for a few days at a time, I each time I left him, I thought it would be the last time. And, you know, isn't that lovely? <laughs> shouldn't every time you say goodbye to a friend, be? shouldn't you be willing for that to be the last time? What an incredibly powerful friendship to have with someone that when you say goodbye to them, you throw your arms around them and say, you know, we could never meet again. And to be totally comfortable with that. So I learned to do that with him. And um, now I do that with all my friends. <laughs> I, I'm willing for every day to be the last one. And I said it to Eric several times. The last couple of times I was saying goodbye to him, leaving for my flight back to Ireland was, you know, I'm leaving you as you are. And, you know, as, as good friends do, they say goodbye without expectation. If my saying goodbye is predicated on the fact that I must see you again before you die, well, then really I shouldn't go. But I had a life to live and it was really nice to just be able to go and hey, a couple of weeks later he was still alive and I went over and saw him again. There's kind of just the lovely easiness to it. As if he was in town again, a friend who was, who was still around, hey, let's meet up again. And this beautiful, rela- there was no panic. Um, and he might have died while I was there, he might have died when I was just walked out the door, he might have died when I was on my way over. No one knew the moment and we just, we all just got used to that. That year, my main occupation was travelling from my home in Maynooth to visit Eric at his home and bedside in England. So this is his last diary entry, Thursday 11th of August 2005, Voyage of Discovery. I have been making various attempts over the past weeks and months to write a diary entry. I know now how my friend Philip Sudo of Zen Guitar must have felt. I am very grateful to my brother for his help in achieving this. Things are very tough physically and it will take a miracle to get through them. The next milestone is my son Stefan's third birthday on August 27th. We already had Francesca's first birthday on the 5th of July. Thank you for your continuing messages of support. I also want to thank those special friends who have taken the time and travelled great distances to visit me during this difficult time. Just to let you know, it has been a voyage of incredibly intense spirituality and self-discovery. Please feel free to support me and my family and my music through this website by staying in touch regularly and spreading the website name as far and wide as you can. I am sorry that this message is not as coherent as I would have liked, but I would rather say something sooner than wait until later. You are all in my thoughts and I appreciate being in yours. Eric Roach, Thursday, 11th of August, 2005. Jeez, I never realised he signed off the last one with his full name. That's interesting. And I wrote it. He narrated, he narrated that to me, but I didn't, I think he might have known that was the last one. Well, that's the last official um, public announcement. But I, I did become exhausted from the travelling and from the emotional turmoil of saying goodbye to him for the last time on a weekly basis. And in the end, I put off a trip slightly and, um, and during that extended period, he died. But he did call me the night before to say goodbye, which is, takes incredible presence of mind for a brother to pick up a phone and say, hey, you know, tonight is definitely the night. Yeah, I'm not going to make it through the night and to be coherent enough to say farewell. And I believed him that time. He'd, 
he thought it a few times before, but this one felt different. And it was really strange going to sleep that night, knowing that I'd probably wake up or by a phone call or wake up the next morning to call to find out that he'd passed away. But his wife, Candy, called me the moment he passed away and she was actually in the bed with him asleep. And they were just napping together as they'd often done in the hospice. And she was just lying beside him and they both fell asleep. And he had death throes and that woke her. There's a gasping that, that happens when you pass and um, I like to think he was aware of the of that wonderful sacrament that was happening at that time, the, the defining moment of his whole life that he knew was coming, that he had practiced for, that he was totally content about. And she woke to almost just witness this this passage. And within minutes, she was obviously phoning my parents and myself to tell us what had happened. And it was it was the most, I felt like I was the first to hear uh, about the, uh, you know, the, the, the movement of someone into sainthood or into another world. It was like, it's happened. Wow, that is so incredible. It just, I was in the presence of an incredible mystery of intense beauty and wonder. No panic, just, wow, it's happened. Eric has done it. He's God, you know, he did it with such grace and style. That's just beautiful. And of course, I was moved to the point of almost having an out-of-body experience. But that's not the same as horrified, um, you know, desperately angry or any of those things. I suppose there was sadness, but it was so wrapped and shrouded with relief for him that he wasn't physically suffering, that he did it his way that it was all as peaceful as it could have been, as painless as it could have been, that everyone was around, ready. It it was just, there was a loveliness to it because it was full of love. There was love everywhere. I mean, there was nothing but love going on as he passed from here into what other state of pure consciousness he now exists in. And I, I was rocked to my core. That was a, an incredibly powerful experience and um, followed immediately by a sense of privilege. I think a smile came over my face and I felt so privileged. Like I'd just gotten to live with a rock star for my whole life. Wow, that's so cool. I just lived with one of the most beautiful people that ever lived. That is awesome. That's, that was that sort of sense rather than, oh, this is so unfair. This is terrible. There was none of that. It was just, wow, so that's, hmm, that's, that's how it ends. It's, it's, he did it. You know, like you hear someone completing an expedition or they made it, you know, to the North Pole. Wow, Eric, Eric passed on. Wow, just like we thought he would. So that was, that was life altering. While myself and Eric didn't spend a lot of time with each other um, for the last, you know, 10 years, um, obviously we spent a lot of time together in the last year or so of his life. And, and I really got to know him again. And I learned an awful lot, of, obviously, about acceptance because he exuded and lived acceptance. I learned so much about acceptance from him and the importance of kindness. And I'm... I haven't, um, I don't, I don't um, possess those levels of acceptance and grace that he did, but those were precious gifts because 
those gifts are, you know, they're apprenticed, they're not handed over. They're not gifts you can purchase and hand to someone. You have to stay with someone and be apprenticed in the art of grace. So it's a it's a very special type of gift. You're, you're, um, I, I was mentored almost. So I was walking hand in hand with him towards his death and yet he was teaching me. And I suppose that's what big brothers do. And, and I gained a huge appreciation of the importance of taking nothing for granted and living for the present and the importance of being who you are and being fully accepting of being who you are. And I suppose, and I feel blessed and, and enriched for all of that. And at the surface level of just, you know, wishing to have a few jokes and listen to more music, there's a sense of just missing a good old friend. And then someone might ask, well, you know, what, what does it feel like now that he's gone? Or what have you lost and how do you feel his absence? I miss my brother, but that doesn't mean I want him back. And that sounds awful. That sounds like I'm saying, stay dead. But it's, it's not saying stay dead. It's saying, you're finished your journey on this earth. I'm absolutely privileged to have been around for it. I learned so much from it. But if I wished for him to be back, it would be like wishing that we'd had a different journey. It would be like wishing he never died. It would be, it would be like living, wishing that Eric lived a different life and I walked in a different life with him. And I don't wish that. I am delighted with the life exactly as we lived it. And I do miss him. But everything that's important that he gave me, I, I still carry with me. And you know what's really freaky is I'm now over 37 because he was my older brother. So now I'm older than he was and left with the question, could I already have been through, could, am I mature enough, am I human enough to face death and already have passed by the age I am now? That's, that's an awesome thing to look up to your big brother for, is for him to teach you how to die. What an incredible gift. If I can die half as gracefully, it, it would be, I would be happy. That would be something I'd aspire to, even look forward to in my, my stronger moments. Yeah, 37, but um, that was the age, that was his full age. <laughs> he wasn't young when he died, he was at the age of death. Nothing was cut short. That was his journey. There's an old saying that um, it's like a candle. Your life is as long as the candle burns. And Eric had a 37-year-old long candle, and that's... His life ended at the absolute perfect time, to the millisecond. It wasn't a millisecond too long and a millisecond too short. He missed nothing. He lacked nothing. His life wasn't incomplete. Of course, his children and his wife will miss him dearly, as will his, his parents and sister and brother. But that in no way suggests that he should be here. He's um, pure consciousness. He's all around us and he's in the music.
we're so lucky as a family, an extended family and a family of friends that we are left with an anthology of music that embodies that grace, that embodies that um, sense of harmony and flow that if you listen carefully, you can just touch and just, you know, you don't have to get a glimpse for long because if you're in the presence of beauty and grace, you're not counting the time. So it is forever when it's happening. So his music can bring you into contact through its grace and beauty to that timelessness that even a glimpse of is as valuable as, as eternity. He'd be proud of that. I think that's as good as he could explain it. Okay. Just have time for one more, maybe, and... Uh... Hope you enjoyed yourself, yeah? yeah. yeah.